Well, this morning you were introduced to the men who have agreed to serve as elders of Chatham Christian Church for 2020. And next week you will be asked to affirm that they are biblically qualified to serve as such. You know, serving as an elder is a big responsibility and affirming someone as an elder is a big responsibility. So how do we determine if someone is biblically qualified to serve as an elder? Obviously, we begin by looking in the Bible. And there in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, we find the basic qualifications to look for in men who would be set apart as elders. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we read, It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then in Titus, first chapter, verses 5 through 9, we read, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To summarize, we might say they must be men of good character who have their priorities right in life and good family men who can oversee the family of God with an understanding of God's word and God's will. So how do they become what they need to be? I think the answer can be found in Acts. When Peter and John were defending themselves before the Jewish council, we read these words. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. It wasn't education or formal training that equipped Peter and John to be leaders in the church. It was having been 
with Jesus. That must be true of elders today. We should be able to recognize them as men who have been with Jesus. Now, in our study of Mark's gospel, we've been looking at the why questions that Jesus faced and answered as he began his ministry in Galilee. But we're going to skip over the fourth question for a couple of weeks and jump to a text that makes it clear that being with Jesus is different than just following him or even knowing him. So this morning we're going to begin with verse 7 of chapter 3 where we find that the multitudes followed him. And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him, for he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. After his last confrontation with the Pharisees and learning of their plot to destroy him, Jesus withdrew to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He was most likely seeking a little private time, but it it wasn't to be. A great multitude followed him. And when Mark says a great multitude, he meant great. We're talking about thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands. They came from all over Palestine and even beyond the borders, from the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon on the coast of the Mediterranean to the Decapolis, east of the Jordan, and south, even into Idumea, the former country of Moab. Mark says that a great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Now, that really isn't what Jesus wanted. He had already stopped publicly entering cities to avoid the crowd. He had come to preach and teach, but the crowds wanted more. They wanted miracles. They wanted to be healed. When faced with their needs, Jesus couldn't ignore them, and so he healed them all. But it got a little crazy. In fact, Jesus even arranged for a boat to follow him along the shoreline in case the crowd overwhelmed him and he had to escape. It was like a mob at a rock concert. You know, everyone wanted to see him, to hear him, to touch him. They were his fans, his groupies, his followers. You know, like the, the deadheads who used to follow the Grateful Dead from city to city and from concert to concert. They followed Jesus wherever he went. If they had bumpers, they would have had bumper stickers identifying themselves as Followers of Jesus. He'd become very popular. It was the end thing to be able to say you had heard him or seen him or been healed by him. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to the masses. 
In the second chapter of John, we're told that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, early in his ministry, many believed in his name, beholding the signs he was doing, but that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew what was in man. He knew the crowds could be fickle. That popularity was a fleeting thing. That the same multitude that praised you one day would condemn you the next. You see, just being where the religious action is doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus. And churches that assume they are making disciples by drawing large crowds may be setting themselves up for a huge disappointment. It's not enough to be a part of a multitude that follows Jesus. Nor is it enough to even know who he really is. And whenever the unclean spirits behold him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to make him known. The demons knew who Jesus was. When preaching in Capernaum, Jesus had been interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit who cried out, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. That demonic recognition of Jesus continued. Whenever unclean spirits beheld him, they would cause the one possessed by them to fall down before him and cry out, You are the Son of God! Why they did that, we can only guess. Perhaps they thought by identifying him, the people would assume that he was in league with them, as the Pharisees would soon argue. Maybe they thought they could render him powerless over them if they could identify him before they identified uh, before he identified them because it was thought you could gain power over someone by speaking their name. Maybe they said it because they knew Jesus didn't want the masses to know he was the son of God not yet not before he could address their misconceptions about the kingdom of God and the role of the Messiah. Whatever their reason for revealing his identity might have been, their doing so indicated that they knew him. They knew he was the son of God. And they're not alone in that. You know, surveys have indicated that the vast majority of Americans know who Jesus is. And when asked to identify him, they even say he's the son of God. Now, some might think it's a good thing. That simply believing Jesus to be the Son of God makes you a Christian and secures your place in heaven. But James said, the demons also believe and shudder. Just knowing Jesus is not enough. Even knowing the truth about him is not enough. The multitudes followed him. The unclean spirits knew him. But the twelve were with him. And he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve 
that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. <laughs> to them he gave the name Boagenes, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. When Jesus withdrew to the sea, his disciples went with him. Now, a disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. One who seeks to learn from someone he views as his teacher, his mentor, his master. And Jesus had quite a band of disciples by this time. Some had attached themselves to him on their own, and others had been invited by him to become his disciples. As you've already seen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all fishermen, had been challenged to follow Jesus and become fishers of men. And Matthew had been called away from his tax office, his toll booth, to follow Jesus. John tells us that Philip had been told, follow me, even before Jesus went into Galilee, and that he introduced Nathanael to Jesus, who also began following him. And we learn in Acts that Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, the two whose names were put forth as possible replacement for Judas, had followed Jesus as long as anyone else. The 12 mentioned here were obviously disciples. And there were others who considered themselves to be disciples as well. And the commitment of disciples to follow Jesus went beyond the curiosity that led the multitudes to follow him. Jesus wanted to go even deeper into relationship with some of his disciples. So he selected 12 to name as apostles. Now, the best manuscripts don't call them apostles here, but they are called apostles elsewhere. An apostle is one who is sent out. And Jesus wanted to prepare 12 men who he could send out as his official representatives with his authority to preach and to cast out demons. Now, the authority to cast out demons may have been linked to their ministry of preaching because the demon-possessed often disrupted the preaching of the gospel. And having power over demons and the ability to perform signs and wonders which he would later give to them also gave empirical evidence that what they were saying about spiritual realities was true. These men would be his official representatives on earth after his ascension back into heaven. And to prepare them for that assignment, Jesus wanted them to be with him. It wasn't enough for them to be a part of a multitude that followed him. It wasn't enough for them to know who he was. They had to know him intimately. They had to be with him enough to become like him, to be changed by him, to begin reflecting his character. So he invested himself day and night into the 12 he selected. Who were these men? 
Well, the first mentioned in any listing of the twelve is always Simon, who Jesus named Peter or Cephas, which means rock. The man who was at times impulsive, who denied Jesus three times, but became a rock-solid witness to the gospel. James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They were short-tempered, judgmental fishermen who Jesus called sons of thunder. James became the first Christian martyr, and John outlived the rest, becoming the elderly apostle of love. Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist, but when John declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God, Andrew began following him and introduced his brother Simon to him. Philip was probably a friend of Andrew. He was from Andrew and Peter's hometown, Bethsaida. He introduced Nathanael to Jesus, and most scholars believe Nathanael is the given name of Bartholomew. Bartholomew actually means son of Ptolemy. Matthew, we know, and Thomas, we know as Doubting Thomas, because he wouldn't believe Jesus had risen from the dead until he actually saw him. James, the son of Alphaeus, was also called James the Less. Both he and Matthew had fathers named Alphaeus, but they were probably not brothers. Alphaeus was a fairly common name. And then due to the fact that the name Thaddeus is not found in either of Luke's lists of the apostles, but is replaced by Judas, the son of James, we assume that Thaddeus is also the one John referred to as Judas not Iscariot. Simon the Zealot is thought by most to have been a political radical, but may have simply been a man who was zealous for God, because there's evidence that the Jewish political party known as the Zealots didn't appear until 68 AD. And appearing last in every list, except the list in Acts, where he's obviously absent, is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Iscariot may mean the man from Kirioth, and if it does, Judas was the only apostle who wasn't a Galilean. Those are the men Jesus chose to be with him. They weren't the best educated or the most influential men that Jesus could find, but they were the men he chose to pour himself into. And he changed them all, except for Judas. Sadly, even those who are chosen by God can rebel against him. He never takes away our freedom to choose to be faithful to him. But the 11 who were faithful to him were changed by him and could be readily identified as men who had been with Jesus. I can think of no higher compliment than to be known as a man or woman who has been with Jesus. And the most wonderful thing about that today is that Jesus no longer has to limit himself to only being with a select few. Everyone who desires to know him intimately can. We can all spend time with him in his word 
and in prayer and in fellowship with his spirit. Not only should those who would be elders of his church be recognized as having been with Jesus, we all should. We all should. And we all can if we will commit ourselves to walking with him, being with him every day for the rest of our lives. O Master, let me walk with thee. If that's the desire of your heart, he'll let you. Just let your desire to do so be known. Let's stand.